You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Guidepost. Willie Goldsmith here and thrilled to have you all back with us. Uh, today, on today's episode, we're going to be moving a bit further afield. You know, typically on The Guidepost, we talk about issues on the domestic stage. We talk about interstate striped bass management, talk about federal legislation like the Madison-Stevens Act, offshore wind and what's going on in the East Coast. And today we're going to move more into the international world and talk about the intrigue of international management and how that affects some of our some of our stocks that are highly migratory, like shortfin mako sharks and bluefin tuna. And to do that, I have my good friend Rick Weber joining us. Rick, welcome to the Guidepost. Thank you for having me. This and I have to. This may I be my first podcast. Well, I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to be here to break the ice with you. And I guess my first question is, I know you're up in Cape May and I'm wondering, was there like a Santa shortage or something at the malls up there? Because that white beard is pretty damn impressive, my friend. <laughs> you know, it, it, No Shave November just started early and hasn't really stopped. You know, I, 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 I went to the uh, barber at one point and said, I, you know, I'd like to look uh, less Marks and more Hemingway. That's um, fair. So I, I got to say, yeah, I agree. It's, it's going Santa. Well, I'm also, you know, Tony is not with us today. And since he isn't here, we of course need to make fun of him a little bit. And I have to say, I feel like if he was here, he'd be licking his chops, thinking about what kinds of crazy fly concoctions he could, he could whip up with that, with that <laughs> luscious uh, white beard he got there. So um, I will also note folks um, again, you know, we know that Tony, which who is typically on the podcast um, as well, is a is a rather loquacious individual. Uh, he may only be exceeded by Rick, who has a way of waxing verbose uh, in a, always an eloquent fashion. And so uh, we look forward to to hearing what he has to pontificate on today as we discuss um, what's gone on with international fisheries management. So, Rick, before we you know get into get into the issue at hand, I'm wondering if you can just share with listeners a, a bit about yourself and kind of your background and, you know, what, what brings you, uh, what brings you, your interest in, in these highly migratory species? I grew up, I'm the son of a charter boater and I grew up, uh, around fish and fishing. Uh, and my dad really greatly enjoyed the offshore fish. It, it was the adventure. It was the, it was the offshore safari, if you will, going off and not knowing what you're going to encounter. Um, from, from from big to small and risking an absolute zero. I, 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 I do think of offshore fishing sort of like uh, an American safari. So I grew up in, in and around that and marinas and tournaments. And at some point, there's enough going on with regulation that you get involved because you want to be part of the process. And that led me to becoming part of the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service Highly Migratory Species Advisory Panel. And after you spend a little bit of time there, you realize that the decisions are being made above them, which led me to the ICAT process. Um, 
ICAT standing for the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas. Um, it is the international law of pelagic species for the Atlantic. Um, and so I joined the advisory committee at, uh, for the US ICAT. And uh, I've even gone above that and, and for a number of years have actually gone and joined the delegation and, and gone to watch actual international policy be made. Uh, some would say it's like sausage. You, you really shouldn't watch it be made. Um, it, 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 it does leave some distaste in your mouth when you watch the process. Um, but, you know, it, it just keeps moving up. You, you go to a place that you want to have an impact and you get pulled to the next level up. Um, so, who knows? Maybe so you, someday so you, be... you, you, you've been sucked in is what you're telling me and you haven't figured out a way out yet. You know... It, 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 there is a, 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 an illness of those of us who are really deep into the migratory species. You know, I, I, I've, I've frequently said that if you, if, you have no, uh, if you have no taste for uncertainty, you have no place being anywhere near fisheries management <laughs> because it is nothing well but uncertainty. Well um, put. And, and Rick, can you just tell us, you know, Tell us about, you know, the business you operate and the tournament you operate up in Jersey. Sure, sure. Uh, my wife and I own uh, South Jersey Marina in Cape May. It was my father's for a number of years, and uh, then my wife and I bought it. Um, part of that is a tournaments program. Uh, we run four or five tournaments through the summer help some clubs with some of their tournaments as well. Our largest is a tournament named the Mid-Atlantic, um, which is an offshore billfish tournament. Um, there's a number of them in, in, in the region, but uh, yeah, yeah, ours is the Mid-Atlantic. We run it out of two ports, both Cape May and Ocean City. Roughly 200 of the, of the big offshore boats each year. And it's it's worth mentioning, Rick, before we get into the uh, into the international management stuff. Uh, you know, my my advisor in graduate school, John Graves, Dr. Graves down at Vim's, um, was a was a partner with you for many years and continues to be uh, doing biological sampling, right, for a lot of billfish at that tournament. And so you're an active participant in, in all of that all of that work that goes into better understanding what these fish are eating and everything else, right? John was with us on year one, um, and has handled or one of his co-workers have handled every marlin that has come to the dock um, has samples for probably 90% of them over the years so uh, I know he lost one freezer one time but that that database that they built at uh, Vim's it was a big part of, of defining the round scale spearfish from a genetic standpoint because we had all of these samples ready to to compare and 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 for the for the dna awesome no that's great to hear and obviously for so many of these species and we'll get into it you know these are big animals but they live in a very big place and there's still so much that we don't know and every time you can find a new approach a new genetic approach a new tagging approach or a new region to study it just it just adds so much more to our our body of knowledge and you know, again, despite that, we've still got a lot of uncertainty. And that's kind of, I think, what partially brings us here today to talk about ICAT. And again, 
ICATS, the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas. Uh, it's a treaty organization of, I think, 52 nations around the Atlantic, uh, that were fish in the Atlantic, I should say. Um, you know, and they manage species, including sharks, like such as shortfin makos, your tunas, so bluefin, big eye, yellowfin, skipjack, um, swordfish, billfish, you know, any species that, that is really highly migratory and, and crossing across inter uh, international boundaries. And again, as Rick mentioned, this group comes together uh, once a year. Typically, it's an in-person meeting. The last couple of years has been a little bit different. It is quite the show, uh, having only attended once. I know Rick has gone many times. Uh, I have the privilege of serving with Rick as a uh, ICAT, U.S. ICAT Advisory Committee member and, and, uh, and being part of the initial conversations there. But, you know, it's really, Rick, I see it as kind of all of the intrigue of international diplomacy coupled with all of the uncertainty and and challenges of fisheries management all kind of rolled up into one um and so you've got these these 50 nations coming together you know the the meeting takes place in three different languages right english french and spanish and and trying to come to consensus on these really sticky issues around fisheries conservation and monitoring and and compliance and management and it is just incredible and um, I think listeners will enjoy kind of hearing a bit more about, you know, your experience with that. Um, but I guess, again, before we get into these specific issues and what went on this year, you know, tell us about the meeting. Tell us what goes on. Uh, you know, again, it's kind of it's for folks who are participating in these fisheries. Um, it's a little bit behind the curtain, right? You've got these these delegations going to this meeting with hundreds of people to, to talk tuna. Yeah, and, and 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 I will tell you that it is behind the curtain, and there are things that, frankly, I'm I'm not allowed to talk about. You know, I mean, it's and I and I don't argue with that. I don't feel constrained, but it's all international negotiation, and. Uh, there is a harsh briefing. You know, I, I guess you probably had the Deirdre briefing. Um, there's a harsh briefing that comes. This is the State Department, right? Worth mentioning. State is very much involved in this whole process because, as you said, it's an international process. It is, and, and, and so uh, Deirdre Warner Kramer is, is is our lead from State, and there is a. Uh, strict warning that you get every year that that is basically what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Um, that said, what happens on the strip in Vegas, we're allowed to talk about. I just can't get into, you know, what U.S. positions might have been or did we consider or those type things. But uh, before I make it sound like there's a whole lot of intrigue in that room, I will tell you that when we are there, we all pull together as one nation. It really is a really great thing to see where you've got wrecks from four higher and private. You've got commercials from three or four different technologies. You normally have a council rep. Um, then you pick up all the government people, OLE, Coast Guard, you, there are all of these groups that are represented. And in those delegation meetings, it is a single goal. 
which is to get the best deal we can for the United States that fits our values. It's, it, you know, it, 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 there, there's, there's a lot of putty that gets pushed around. And uh, it's, it's really, it, it's a great process to watch. To that extent, I, was gonna I say, really enjoyed being part of it. I was going to say, I mean, you must enjoy it because it is a bit of an exercise in masochism. Am I wrong? Well, glaciers. And by that, I by that I mean the 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 ten day the ten fourteen hour days of these just grueling meetings and negotiations. Well, I, I, well, a standard day for our delegation when we are on location, when we're actually there, is we get up and frequently have an AM delegation meeting where we're briefed on any developments that happened overnight and what we're expecting to hear for the day. Then we go into the commission room. We are there from 9 a.m. to roughly 6 p.m. Um, with a nice lunch break. But then right after the delegation, after the commission meeting, there's always a delegation meeting again to get everybody back together and we compare notes about what we heard or what we thought of what we heard through the day. Um, and honestly, the, then the government people work well into the night redrafting proposals to accommodate what opinions came out in the day. It's, uh, um, it, 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 it is grueling and it's more grueling on the government folk than anyone. It, it, it really is. And I, I think to that point, it's worth mentioning, you know, folks who follow what goes on at the, at the regional councils or at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, it's all about the votes, right? It's all about, you know, do we have enough states that, that like this? Or are there enough council members who like this? And, and ICAT is really a consensus-based body, right? You've got all, you've got, what, 600 people in the room with representing 50-odd nations. Um, and votes are very rare. It's mostly about finding agreement. It is. It is a consensus body. Um national jurisdiction is is very important to every country regardless of size um from from iceland all the way up to the u.s and the european community um nobody really wants to be told what to do and there are processes that let people take an exception to a rule if they don't like it and so pushing things to a vote it wouldn't be productive because only those people largely who voted yes are compelled to live by the vote. If you, if you vote no, you can immediately take an objection and then you're not compelled to do it. But we do work by consensus and consensus is achieved a lot of ways. Um, Sometimes it is networking in the background. Sometimes it's finding common ground. Sometimes it's calling people out on the floor and risking embarrassing them. Um, and sometimes you just wear them down because you bring your same proposal back for the eighth or ninth or tenth year. Um, where some people are going, why, why are we discussing this again? Um, 
an example of that, and uh, we might as well get into some some examples because they're fun, and and we don't need to just talk yeah. theory. Um, <laughs> the U.S. is frequently trying to level the playing field for our recreational and commercial fishers, and so we implemented, and other nations did as well, a policy called fins naturally attached. Um, it was an anti-finning maneuver that said, if you are going to bring in shark fins, they need to be physically attached to the carcass of the shark from which they came. Um, there had been other ways, you know, percentages of weight, and people started questioning whether those fins really went with those logs. Um, so the U.S. put in a policy of fins naturally attached. And we have brought back annually, to the chagrin of some nations, a fins naturally attached proposal because we know it's the right thing to do. And it's the right thing to do not just for the fish, but for a level playing field for the American fishing industry, getting other nations to do what we are doing. Um, and so we, we keep coming back with fins attached and you can see eye rolls when we introduce it on the floor like this again. Um, but yes, this again, we're gonna talk about fins naturally attached until fins naturally attached passes. Until right. there is consent. Well, I think, you know, well, it's interesting, right? Because I think it's, you know, thinking about COVID, right? And like the collective action problem, right? Of trying to stop the spread and all of that. And I think, you know, you think about the collective action problem of international fisheries management, where like, you're the US and you want to lead by example. But just because you're doing something in your area doesn't mean it's going to be necessarily emulated elsewhere. And it might be the exact same fish going from place to place. And so it's just that that really tricky balance and kind of that that intermediate zone that's so touchy and so tricky. And I think it's been, you know, it's just fascinating to see that play out, you know, I, as you said, over many years, I, I think the, the circle hooks is another example, right? The long line fishery, where that's been another, another case of, uh, of trying to lead by example, but in the process kind of, you know, it's, you, you end up in a situation where other countries, if they aren't adopting it, then the resource isn't necessarily benefiting as much as it could be. And it's frustrating, I imagine. <laughs> Now we're getting into the sausage being made problem. Um, and we can, yeah, we can, needless to say, um, for folks, listening, I, can, yeah, I yeah. can talk about this because I'm not going to talk about U.S. policy. But, yeah, but yeah. when you watch how it goes down, Willie, we are a consensus body. And so if someone, some party who does not want to implement circle hooks, can find any study, they march it to the floor and say, oh, this is all very interesting, but we certainly can't go along with it because of this study that says it kills more of this fish or that fish, or it's not as effective. Um, or just because it worked in the United States doesn't mean it'll work in our waters. Or, 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 or. Um, it's a burden of proof situation, right? Because it just, it's, it's consensus based. With, so if there's any with doubt. With a rising bar. With a rising bar, even. Um, this year, we saw 
thanks to the work of, of, of the U.S. team ahead of the commission meeting, um, we saw more acceptance of our circle hook proposal. Um, but pretty quickly, the conversation became one of, well, if circle hooks work, we're now going to have to research the implementation of circle hooks. And so now we have to get into so it's a can kicking exercise, sort of, as opposed to study after study of what size leader, what type leader, did, you know, can we do these things always work? You know, it's just like go put out some circle hooks and save some live fish, would you? Um, and <laughs> it, it it it's it's an uphill battle. It is absolutely yep, an uphill no. battle. But your team keeps pushing. Absolutely. Yep. No, I. I I, and I imagine you you form some pretty strong bonds over that process. Um, and before we get into the the subject of the day, and you know, as typical with you and me, we're already twenty minutes in. You know, talking about the the theoretical stuff. One of the cool things about ICAT, I think, is the meetings are held somewhere different, mostly every year. You know, by by one of the countries that that's an ICAT that's an ICAT country. Um, what's been your favorite place of and all the years you've gone to ICAT meetings? Well, on sheer mileage, Cape Town was interesting. Um, you know, I mean, that is certainly the farthest I've ever been from home. Um, in addition, we were in Morocco twice, and we were in Croatia twice. I very difficult to pick a favorite. I we get very little time. People think like, oh, it's going to be. You must have so much fun spending a week and a half in Malta, and. Uh, I kind of tell most times, you know, the conditions are exactly the same, roughly 70 degrees in fluorescent deep. Um, <laughs> because I just, I, I laid out there our schedule for you. Is it exciting and interesting to travel? And do you get some hours here and there to go out and take in the local culture? You do. And so I'm not going to pretend that I saw none of South Africa or none of these other places. But uh, it is far from a leisurely expedition. Um, and for the last two years, the, I, the, the site has been exactly the same, my kitchen. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. I will say, you know, for me, I've only had the one meeting in, in Croatia in 2018. And my highlight, as I'm sure you know, was during those, whatever you call them, luxurious lunch breaks, I would just steal some shrimp or prosciutto or whatever was at the buffet that day and run down to the dock with my travel rod and catch some little fish on some some little tiny size 16 hooks i brought with me um and that was that was the extent of my excitement during that uh, exhausting 10 days or whatever it was um but yeah i think it's definitely you know you can always make the time on the back end but it's you know it's um i think most people are so wiped at that point anyway you kind of just want to get home it's usually around thanksgiving too right that that's happening it's been across thanksgiving so, even oh. Yeah, um, we, we have, unreal. We have, my my first trip to Dubrovnik was uh, not when you were there, but oh, probably ten years earlier, and uh, I was an observer at that one, and it was across it was across Thanksgiving, and they 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 cooked us up a uh, they they cooked us up a turkey dinner, invited us up to a special room, <laughs> and uh, we invited our Canadian neighbors to join us. Um, who have Thanksgiving, <laughs> but not on the same days, but they were happy to join in on ours. 
right? Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, hey, let, let's get into the stuff here. You know, we'll let and we, we can be up front, right? I mean, I think you and I, we, we, we talk and we don't always fully agree on stuff. And I think we have good conversations on this and it's, it's good to, to, to have the discussion. So, you know, I think there, there are two big issues that are of interest to, to rec anglers, you know, on the East coast that were on the, on the docket this year. Uh, the first one, uh, which I think will be the less, uh, less contentious of the two, um, has to do with uh, with Western Atlantic bluefin tuna. And uh, for folks who who follow our blog, we put something out a few weeks ago, uh, right before the ICAP meeting, just kind of you know outlining the state of play with bluefin tuna, because um, certainly a lot of anglers along the coast have been seeing more small fish than they ever had in the past um, over the past couple of years. And the stock assessment in 2020 um, did not show a particularly rosy outlook for the species, despite all those small fish that folks were seeing. Um, you know there was Basically, the, the data was showing that there hadn't been great recruitment, uh, that there had been a, a decline in the stock, part, part of which was expected um, as a big year class from 2003 kind of moved through and out of the fishery. Um, kind of due to some concerns around that stock assessment, um, ICAT elected to basically punt uh, in 2020 and, and, and roll over the, the Western Bluefin Tuna quarter to 2021 uh, with the understanding that there would be a new stock assessment update this year. Uh, and that came out, I believe, um, in September. And that actually showed a much more encouraging outlook for bluefin. Um, you know, part of that was certainly due to um, changes and assumptions around how the models were run, um, but also about a third of it was due to um, was due to the indices themselves. You know, the, the numbers of small fish being caught uh, as detected in the U.S. fishery, and you know, basically determined that there could be maybe a small increase in the Western bluefin tuna quota. Uh, certainly, you know, at ASGA, our perspective was, you know, this is this is great news, it's encouraging. Um, at the same time, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty here, so let's not, you know, go, go wholesale and have a, have a really big increase, but certainly appreciate the, um, you know, the desire for some folks to harvest some more bluefin. So, uh, Rick, you know, what, I guess we can start with kind of the facts, right? And we don't really, you know, we, we can gloss over those, uh, those, you know, the negotiations and all of that stuff and kind of just think about what happened. Um, you know, my understanding is that there was in the end, the decision to increase the Western bluefin quota, right? By about 15%. Um, I think just by virtue of some of the diplomacy inherent in, um, in bluefin quota, uh, the U.S. quota is going to go up by about 5% for 2022, um, which I think folks are, are generally pretty pleased with. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on the increase and in kind of the outcome of the, of the bluefin element of the meeting? I think they got this one right. Um <clears throat> I think relevant to your folks, this is this was an example of the index not matching reality. Um, I was a strong believer that the 2020 assessment was incorrect. It just wasn't matching what any angler was seeing on the water. You know, the scientists initially start telling us, well, just because you can see them doesn't mean there's lots of them. That just means you're seeing them. And so we had to sort of build a case that they that that all sizes were being seen in many places at the same time in order to create enough doubt to make them willing to go back and reopen the indexes and 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 really give it a good critical look. Um, and I think the anglers were right 
on that one. I think the initial science was wrong on it. there were some changes in the fishery. Um, there were fish simply not being estimated. There was some questions in, in, in the MRIP surveys that, that were being, you know, did you target bluefin? And then if you didn't, it, it didn't, the, the right questions weren't being asked. So when we went back and started looking at how fisheries were changing, they, they, they realized that there were things that they could adjust and that would adjust the index and adjusting, you know, we have the only juvenile index for Western bluefin tuna, the Rex, I mean, by not just us, the Rex. Um, And I think it's worth, it's worth repeating that. Right. So when it comes to, and we talk about recreational data all the time, most people think about recreational data is as let's make sure we don't catch too many fish, which is certainly part of it. But for a species like bluefin tuna, the small fish that we catch that are sampled by, you know, large pelagic survey, part of MRIP, that goes to ICAT, and that's the juvenile abundance index for the western stock of Atlantic bluefin tuna, right? It and that's is, an, and, important, and, and, it's an important thing to so it, it It's always interesting talking to frontline anglers because so many people want to game the system. You know, do you want me to report a lot? Well, no, if you report too many, they're going to shut us down. Okay, I get it. Then I'll under-report. No, don't do that because then there aren't any fish. <laughs> just go- And that is not unique to bluefin tuna, I don't think, either. And tell them the truth. <laughs> because if you game the system, you are sending a false – there are two false signals. You can either say we're killing way too many or there aren't any fish out there to be caught. You can't win except by saying what's going on, and I think is kind of the bottom line here. And I think say that's why those within Bluefin, the reporting numbers and and you know I I have certainly seen you know where people are cautious to speak to the government overseer um, and don't always want to tell them, and that is that is not the right thing to do because these this is how indexes get messed up is all of a sudden you go, well, why is, why is the intercept sending one signal, but the telephone survey giving a different signal? Um, and when the scientists don't get clear signal, you know, if they both say the stock's doing great, then, then they know what to do. Um, I say it, it was, I think, you know, I know there's still skepticism on, on, on the assessment, but, uh, I think they got it right. I I think the bluefin was going up, and I think the 2020 assessment that used the flawed indexes was the was the wrong one. And it's you know it's again with the 2021 assessment, you know one of the two models was not record. You know it was based it failed right, and the other model was after our review said, you know, maybe we shouldn't use this for, you know, the review basically said this maybe shouldn't be used for management because of some uncertainties with it. That doesn't negate what the indices are saying and it doesn't negate kind of what you're saying, but I think it does, you know, argue for some level of caution to be applied. And I think, as you've said, you know, with the numbers this year, um, you know, this was, again, not having insight into the deliberations here, um, you know, a pretty measured approach. Uh, And I think we also should mention and just reiterate that this is this is 
in many ways, kind of a one-year measure, right? If we think about management strategy evaluation, and that's a whole nother situation that we could spend two podcasts or more talking about. We don't need to get into it. But I think the bottom line is that beginning in 2023, we hope, knock on, knock on wood, uh, we will have a new management paradigm that explicitly incorporates mixing between Western and Eastern bluefin tuna um, and really creates a much more um, formulaic approach to, to how we set management targets or quotas um, for both the Eastern and Western stocks. So definitely, you know, there's change in the offing that's going to more accurately reflect uh, what happens on the water. Uh, we know from tagging and, and other other methods like um, ear, inner, inner ear chemistry with otoliths, um, you know, some, some other tracers that anywhere from, you know, 50 to 85 or more percent of our fish in the Western Atlantic might be of Eastern origin. Uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of dynamicity here as there is with all these highly migratory species. So certainly looking forward to, to seeing this management strategy evaluation, um, you know, come to fruition and be part of how we, how we think about our, our, our bluefin as they traverse the Atlantic mm, back and forth. You're more of a believer in MSE than I am. <laughs> well, my, my thought is if it keeps being explained to me over and over again, one of these years, I'll actually fully understand it, but it's definitely, it is a complex issue. And again, the folks at the Southeast Fisheries Science Center, um, you know, have been diligent in, uh, in working to try to explain this to stakeholders. And there's certainly more work to be done there. Um, but it is, it is a challenge and it is a, definitely a new way of thinking about, um, managing bluefin. And I have fear that it introduces all sorts of new places for those with less than good intentions to muddy things up and work. You mean countries or people? Well, at ICAT, it's. It 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 it, it, it right. it's countries, but at the end of the day, it's to benefit their people. So yes, is the answer to your question. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, there is there there was. Uh, I believe chatter on the floor about about northern albacore, which is which in theory was our test case where we were going to work out all of the wrinkles of MSE. And, and now there's talk about, well, maybe those models aren't the right model. You know, it, the promise of MSE is that you settle into a paradigm and that paradigm takes you for 10 or 12 years and there is consistency. Um, I think you're going to see people not want to choose the same objectives. I think you're going to see members not want to choose the same management strategies when they, when they are finally proposed. And I think you're going to see some level of management schizophrenia within the new paradigm as hmm. each time we re-up a measure, someone says, well, let's try, you know, much like fisheries, existing fisheries management, right? I don't pretend to understand the models. I know that I flinch every time someone says, well, this time when we were managing, we, we used the other four type of model. 
you know, when, 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 when you switch them back and forth, those of us who have to watch from the outside feel like there's not enough consistency to measure, and yet we're handed this thing that we're told is the best available science. You know, and mm -hmm. I would feel better when you run both models and tell me how both models came out or something along those lines. But I think you're going to see model hopping even within MSE. Okay. And it's not, it's not going to live fully at first. We'll see where it goes in the long run. But at first, I don't think it's going to live up to the promise um, that you are hoping it to be. It's... It's Rick's opinion from watching it from the outside, but uh, there are, if I'm using the iCat example, there are 52 equal voices. It doesn't, it doesn't yep. matter big nation, small nation, experienced nation, inexperienced nation, have lots of this fish in the water, have none of this fish in the water. They are 52 equal nations with an equal opportunity to weigh in on on which model we're using um so we'll see where it goes i i know that you like the idea and promise of mse i just not sure the reality is going to live up to it i i say we we table it for now rick and we come back and we revisit it when it's when it's progressed to the point where hopefully it's being implemented because i do i do feel optimistic i think so much of you know so much of the challenge is in that negotiation and kind of what to do with uncertainty and on all of those elements. And I see MSE as a way to, you know, not only more, more accurately reflect biology of the fisheries, but also, you know, create, inject more objectivity into the process. And now I, I know that is very pie in the sky thinking for me, um, you know, as a, as you know, perhaps a, a more, a more bright eyed and, and less gray haired individual than yourself or white haired, excuse me. Uh, but that, that's where I am at this point. And, uh, I think we will, we will see what happens. And in the meantime, do what we can to stay engaged and stay educated because it is a thicket, uh, when it comes to understanding those models or, or even understanding the concept of what those models do. <laughs> but with that, Rick, let's, um, let's move on to your favorite topic, uh, which of course is short fin mako sharks. And in particular, the North Atlantic stock of short fin makos. Um, now, for folks who follow fisheries, this has been uh, kind of a recurring issue over the past several years um, with stock assessment scientists showing that the Mako stock is not in good shape at all uh, and is actually projected to decline um, even up through 2035 because so many of the sharks that are actually caught uh, throughout the Atlantic are juveniles because Makos don't mature until they're quite large. Um, and so we've got certainly an interesting, you know, dynamic here with um basically you know what rick i'm gonna pause there and i'm gonna let you explain to us the dynamic uh and kind of what you what you see is as what's been going on um with makos over the past couple of years and kind of where the gridlock was i think for many folks you know they were pushing for a ban um and thinking that that was the that was the way to go and then other folks were saying that that was not going to solve the problem and and bring makos back and i just wanted to kind of pause there and hear your perspective so we start with the premise. The premise is that Mako are badly depleted. 
I'm willing to say I don't know enough and they could be. But I think for those who say that they definitely are, there is still a lot of uncertainty about what nations have been catching them and not reporting them. And you and I both know well that it doesn't take a whole lot of tonnage in, in landings to dramatically change an assessment because a certain level of landings implies a certain amount of tonnage still out there swimming around. And that's, that's a RIC position, not a US position. But when you see nations, counting our own horn here, when you, when you see allowed. other nations who have not found one pound of dead discards while they're fishing long lines in the Atlantic. Not a pound. They have, you know, there is a credibility question there. And I don't necessarily want to call anyone out right now, but it's a valid argument that there is a credibility question with many of the members because they don't either acknowledge, you know, either some people have the magic hooks that catch no makos because they've landed none and discarded none. Um, or they have had zero did discards of anything because they bring everything aboard and keep it. And I, I so I start with a, with a, with a, cautious eye at the science, a skeptical eye at the science. Again, I don't have I don't have the proof that the science is bad. But we just talked about bluefin. Bluefin was definitely going down for the foreseeable future as the 2003 year class left. We were told that. We were promised it. There is nothing you can do to recover bluefin tuna, we were told a number of years ago, western bluefin tuna, because as the 20, 2003 year class leaves, the tonnage is going to be going down. And that is what the 2020 assessment said. But the 2021 came back and said, no, 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 no. Um, it turns out that that 03 that year class wasn't as important. And now we, where we were supposed to have a dark and gloomy assessment, we got a good assessment in, in Western Bluefin. My, now, Mayan, just to jump in, my understanding is that, you know, one of the reasons for that Roser Outlook was because of all the great recruitment in recent years, right, 2017 and, be, and, and beyond that. And I think, you know, the idea of that fishery of that, and I don't want not to get too far afield here, but I think your point is taken that, you know, perceptions can change over time, right? And we saw that from 2020 to 2021 with, Dusky. with Bluefin. You know, when we first started yeah. talking about Dusky, it was on a 400-year rebuilding program. That was 10 years ago. We now think it's a 70-year rebuild. Somehow, we shortened the rebuilding by 330 years in the last 10 years. We need to use good science. 
I am a supporter of science. I don't want to just use knee-jerk, but I want to acknowledge that there are uncertainties that get built into this science. And as we start doing drastic things, we need to at least acknowledge that the science is not always perfect. It's the best we have, and we need to move forward. So acknowledging that MAKO looks bad, with my own caveat on whether or not it actually is. Now, if we... Yeah, I think just, yeah, just to, I think just to streamline our discussion, because I know you have a lot to say beyond that point, we'll assume from this point forward that understanding and putting a asterisk <laughs> on your thoughts about the science, let's say that the science says Makos are bad, you know, in a very bad shape, and something needs to be done. And let's, let's, let's go from there, because I know you have a lot to do. say on that uh, topic. You know, um, the question is what you do for them. Um, do you, there have been three schools of thought that have been brought to ICAT for roughly four or five years. One school of thought said, if we ban the retention of them and no one can retain them, then we will actually create a negative reason to impact them. And maybe some people will avoid them, but at least we won't create a market for them. That was one school of thought. The other school of thought was, all right, so let's not kill any, but let's bring the ones that are dead in so that we're not killing a fish and wasting it. They call that live release. And then the third school, which was the U.S. school of thought until this year, was fishing the same will lead to too many dead fish no matter what we do. And what we need to do is change the fishing methodologies, more circle hooks, more monofilament, so that each so that we what we're reducing is the total fishing mortality, the dead discards and post-release mortality. If we can bring that down, then not only can we take some of the ones that come to the boat dead, but also it's acceptable then to kill a couple of the ones that come to the boat alive, provided that you take them only at a size at which they have spawned. That was the U.S. position. Um, I want to sure. pause there for one second, Rick, because I think this... And just because I like interrupting you, but also because I think I have a point to make. We haven't we haven't said it explicitly, but I think we we kind of got at it earlier with this idea of like leveling the playing field here, right? And I think what you're getting at is, and we I think we've used this expression in the past, you know, distributing the burden of rebuilding equitably across the participants in a fishery. You know, recognizing that some nations like the U.S. have already been proactive, and other nations, you know, a we might not even know what they're catching. Uh, but B, when it comes to the the, the fishing behavior, uh, you know, the gear type and everything else, um, you know, those fundamental issues um, and, and practices are doing far less to help Makos than what other nations like the U.S. have done to date. Is that a fair thing to say? Very much so. Very much so. Um, the U.S. The U.S is both proactive in almost all of these fisheries. 
we are generally ahead of the curve and there's a group of us who really question whether we should ever get ahead of the earth ahead of the curve on icat fisheries because there's no benefit to it um the idea that you lead and others will follow is simply not true and when those other people are ready to act they still want you to take a cut with them regardless of what you have done in the past and so the marlin was an example of that right rick a couple years ago yeah, but we're going to leave that let, there's enough here in mako let you know i mean I, okay. I see where we are on time okay and we don't need to introduce more species though i i may have something for you at the end um <laughs> make mako alone um we dramatically reduced our domestic landings of mako we dramatically by having our commercial fishers switch to circle hooks and mono greatly increased our survival rate even of commercial gears so that the fish that we have coming to the boat are live and ready to be released frequently um and while we were doing that other nations were continuing to double down on their j-hooks and wire leaders and now we get to icat and the same penalty is basically ex expanded across everyone which is no retention um and that i personally will continue to think was unfair and more importantly I don't believe we are going to get the job done on Mako with the no retention ban. If we don't change the gear types of the fleets throughout the Atlantic to more survivable gear, what we are going to do is send more dead Makos to the bottom, or worse, encourage people to mislabel them. Understand, South Atlantic Mako is still wide open. You know, it's not that you're not going to see Mako being sold throughout the world. It's that it has to be South Atlantic Mako. And would you sign here on this line that you caught it beneath the line where North Atlantic Mako becomes South Atlantic Mako? And that, that financial incentive to be less than forthright is a strong incentive. You know, I mean, I, I, I have a hard time faulting people. I wish the incentive wasn't there. But do I think what we are, have done is going to reduce total fishing mortality? I'm questionable. And again, that's Rick's voice, not the U.S. position. I know what the U.S. position was and why we, why it made sense to get there. And I can appreciate the administration people who it's it's exhausting to be standing on the outside of a fight and being the only one with a position even if you have the right position at some point remember we talked earlier about circle hooks and sometimes you do it just by beating people down it may be that on mako the u.s just decided how long are we going to stand here alone 
even if our idea is better. Yep. And as yep. And I think that's the challenge, right? Is it, again, it's that trade-off between and then recognizing the uncertainties, right? And your, you know, your contention that this isn't going to solve the problem. You know, even if it does solve the problem, you know, you you can't kind of erase the history of kind of what's already been done proactively, and that's a real challenge, right? And I think it's a it's something that that shouldn't be trivialized when you think about fleets that have really done a lot. And then are being asked to do more while others are haven't done anything yet. Um, you know, again, I think it depends on the species, it depends on the issue. You know, Mako, I think, you know, there was a very, very simple solution that was put forward by a lot of folks. And you know, at ASGA, we did not we did not weigh in on this because it, it just is not something that is directly in our wheelhouse like Bluefin are. Um, but certainly you can understand um how an elegant solution like a full retention ban will have a lot of appeal. Um, while at the same time, I appreciate the uh, the really complex and and you know again contextual um, you know burden sharing and equity issues that 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 are inherent in this in this issue here. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's uh, we'll see we'll see where it goes. So here's 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 so where here's, do we go? Here's where it goes. Was, what, yeah. What we decided collectively, where we achieved consensus. We've talked about ICAT being a consensus body. Where we achieved consensus, um, the U.S. backed off a little bit on their position of there's a better way. And the other two schools of thought between no retention and live release is sort of where we ended up. What we're going to do for the next two years is go full no retention. Take a break. There should be no North Atlantic Mako landed by any of the member states for two years. And then in the third year, we have agreed to a target of 250 metric tons total mortality. And if in the next two years we can get total mortality, meaning post-release and dead discard. If we can get that below 250 tons, then whatever that gap is below 250 tons will be made available to retain some of the fish that come to the boat dead. Still not killing any. This is this is uh, this is only those fish that arrive at the boat dead. Now, I'm still a U.S. person. I personally think this disadvantages our fleet because we have less mako's that come to the boat dead because of what we've done with our gear. Um, that 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 is not going to stop bothering me. That. Uh, the U.S. fisherman is disadvantaged because they were trying to do the right thing. That just, it's how it played out. I will also, I will, I will, I will reinsert your asterisk. And this is an issue, again, that could be its own podcast around data and reporting and compliance across many of those countries around, you know, 250 tons, you know, in the scheme of what we're talking about, you know, is not a huge number. Um, and that, that's a, you know, that's a, uh, 
the, the compliance question, I think, is still there as well in terms of understanding whether or not that, so, that, so, that, so, that reduction So I told met. you I'd get into some some Marlin-y things, and I'm assuming we're 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 approaching the end. But 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 let me. <laughs> You you mentioned compliance we're, we're good, there, yeah. so let let's take a moment. Um, compliance happens to be an area that I enjoy at at ICAT. Um, there are a few of us data geeks that actually enjoy tearing into the tables and and looking for missing numbers and those type things. And worth mentioning that ICAT does have a compliance committee that it is does. solely devoted to this and, issue, and the U.S. is an active member. Um, but you were talking about uncertainties in this 250 goal. Um, the largest lander of Mako sharks has been uh, the EC or EU. Uh, when this conversation began, they've brought it down since then. Uh, when this conversation began three, four years ago, we were at roughly 350 tons landed plus dead discards. They were at 3,500 tons, no dead discards. Pure landings at 3,500 tons. I don't know what they're going to do to get down to 250 tons because I don't think they were targeting Mako. Because while they were landing 3,500 tons of Mako, they were landing 35,000 tons of blue shark. What they are doing with all that blue shark, I don't know. By the way, a lot of this is north-south combined. So I'm giving you statistics that aren't just always North Atlantic, but. Well, I gotta, I also, I gotta I ask, know. you ever eaten a blue shark? <laughs> okay. It sounds like there's an opportunity there if you wanted I, to. I have not either. It's not really seven, on my list. You know, uh, I just was we're, we're talking 70 million kilo of, of, of blue shark. Um, 10 pounds of blue shark for every one pound of Mako. Um, Rick's personal belief is this is a blue shark fishery with a Mako problem, not a Mako fishery with a blue shark problem. Um, and as such, I don't see where they're going. To, once again, I get back to gear, place, time, technique. And I don't believe they're going to change gear, place, time, or technique. And therefore, they're going to catch Makos on J-hooks. And I don't know what to, to, to say about that. You know, um, do we... If next year... Well, next year... ICAT time is weird, and you know this, Willie. I see you rolling your eyes. In 22, we will report what happened in 21. So when I talk about next year, I'm not actually talking about fishing year 22. I'm talking about fishing year 21, which is already done. Um, so there is almost no chance of reducing landings in fishing year 21 because it's already in the can before the regs come out. So in 23, we will get a report of fishing year 22. That will be the first fishing year after the regs come out. 
if other member states say we no longer landed Mako, and so we are now beneath 250 tons, does this make us happy? Because, again, not speaking as the government, I don't believe them. You know? <laughs> I don't believe yep. them. And I don't know where that the, the data checking lies, whether I get frustrated with Brussels, who is where the data is pulled together, or whether I get upset with Paris and Madrid, who report to Brussels, or whether I get upset with the boat that report to Paris and Madrid. I, 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 don't, I don't know where the trouble lies, but I have fear slash belief that in 23, we're going to see a dramatic drop in landings of Mako. And I don't know how they're going to tell us it happened, only that it happened. And uh, yeah, that's sort of my insight to ICAT here, bud. Um, yeah, um, I think uh, <laughs> some big takeaways, right? I mean, the increment incrementalism, attrition, uh, constant pressure is certainly something we've heard a lot about, right? Um, this balance between getting things done and doing so equitably, you know, and, and kind of in effect, punishing those who have been more proactive is definitely something we've heard about as well. And I think, you know, the, um, the theme that is recurring throughout all fisheries is when we have these kinds of uncertainties, you know, which way do we go and who, how are we precautionary? Um, you know, certainly from ASGA's perspective, you know, we, we want to be precautionary to the resource where, you know, wherever we can, but also recognize that, you know, in, in a lot of these cases, that uncertainty can be viewed in, in different ways by different people. And then all of that bubbles up in these discussions, both internally at the domestic level and then amplified exponentially at the international level. And it is a thicket. And, um, you know, I, I, I know that your hair from your head probably went all to your beard. But at the same time, the fact that there isn't hair and any the fact that there isn't any hair left on your head, uh, I think is at least partially attributable to uh to what's gone on low these many years at uh, each November. So um, <laughs> we appreciate the time, Rick. This has been an excellent conversation. Hopefully some folks have gotten a little bit of insight into, uh, into what the international uh, highly migratory species fishery management world looks like. Um, it is a thicket. It is exciting. Uh, it can be maddening. Um, but you know, if you're passionate about these issues and you want to see something done, this is this is where you do it. So, Rick, thank you so much for joining us tonight um, and have a happy holiday. I hope you uh, make many children very happy this holiday season. With All that right, Willie, well, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for this. It, it, it was fun to do, and I'll be happy to do it again another time if, if there's something that uh, you think folks are interested in.